normal. I mean, this is not revolutionary until you, you, you juxtapose it or you compare it to um, earthly kings and, and other religions. If you think about earthly kings, many of them, dictators, monarchs, they, they, their, their throne or their, or their, um, their monarch, their, their nation, their control is dependent upon the subjects being nervous, being anxious, being worrisome. Uh, they, if, if you're worried about where your food's coming, you're gonna you're gonna look to uh, try and make happy the monarch, the person that feeds you. And so they're dependent; their throne is dependent upon the nation, the people, the culture being worrisome, being anxious. Not only in, in earthly with earthly kings, but every other world religion. You do your best. You do your best. You do your best. You do your best. And then at the end of your life, maybe just maybe you can appease. A God, a, a little G God, into letting you into the afterlife, whatever that looks like. And it's it's in the context of that backdrop of that that Jesus steps on the, uh, on the scene of human history and says, "Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. My throne is firm. It is not dependent upon you. It is not dependent upon your allegiance, even although He desires it. But it's not His throne is firm." So in that context, he can say, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. We saw that last week. And as uh, this, this series on worry, I kind of had it mapped out. But then I got to home group last week, last Sunday night. Uh, you know, shameless plug for a home group. If you're not in one, you should be. Find one, plug in. They, they, they're, they're awesome. But we got to home group. We started talking about worry. What, what does worry look like in our lives? What, what does worry look like in the context of your family? And, and it was interesting because many of, of uh, actually it was unanimous. All of us, one of the big things that we worried about were, were, were future events. I mean, and most of them not grounded in, in, in reality at all. I mean, there were, there were things that will probably, most likely never happen. And yet, we're worried about trials, tribulations that are in the future. And the question that, that I, I kind of ran through my mind throughout the week was, was number one, why are we worried about future trials, future tri- tribulations? And I think the answer is pretty easy about that because none of us wants to walk through it. I mean, it's difficult. It hurts. But the question that followed that for me was how does God use trials? How does he use tribulations? How does he use difficulty in our lives? Things that, that we're worried about in the future that are going to come, how does he use those in our life? And so that's what I want to look at this morning. How does God use trials, use tribulations, use difficulty in our life? Because all of us know, some of you, this is not theoretical at all. I mean, you are in a tough time. And if you're not, all of us know that we, we either just came out of one, or there is one that is warming up in the Pacific Ocean. The, the storm is headed your way. The wave of tribulation, the wave of difficulty is headed towards your life. All of us live in that reality. We live in the, this, this in-between time between Jesus coming, destroying, defeating death once and for all, and yet he has not consummated that with his return. He has not finished the battle. And so we live in the the time in between, the, the difficulty in between, the tribulation, 
and the trials in between because we are infected and affected by sin. And so what are we doing? What is God up to in this time, in this gap of trials and tribulations? That's what we're going to look at this morning in James chapter 1. While you're turning there, uh, a little background. James uh, was written by a guy named James. I know it's original. The, 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 the book title was written by a guy named James, and his half-brother was who? Jesus. Jesus was his half-brother. Now, I don't know about you, but it would take a lot, I mean a whole lot, for my brother to convince me that he was God in the flesh. All right, think about your sibling. I mean, your scrawny little brother. Or, or maybe your, your overbearing older brother. I mean, what would it take? What would it take for your brother, your sibling, to convince you that he was God? I mean, for me, I would, I, I would be going, Jesus, um, I saw you put on your sandals this morning. I saw you put your cloak on. And you think you're God? You have lost it, man. You are from Nazareth, just like me. And so for much of his life, James said, it is hogwash. I know what God in the flesh, come on, man. You're giving the family a bad name. Would you just be quiet already? But then two things happened. And I think it would be the only two things that could convince me that my brother, my sibling, was God in the flesh. Number one, he died a brutal public death. And then number two, three days later, he rose from the grave. <laughs> That's what it took to convince James. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're going, this whole Christianity thing, I'm not convinced, I'm not so sure. You've got to answer the question, what do you do with James? What do you do with his brother? Because after his death and after his resurrection, James was all in. He was the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, probably the most persecuted church in all of the known world at the time. He was the leader of it. He ended up giving his life, brutally giving his life, for the gospel that he preached. And for the Lord that he served his brother. So you've got to do something with James. If you're here this morning and you're going, I don't understand. I, I'm not sure I get it. I'm not sure I buy this whole thing. You've got to do something with his brother. That's just a side note. I don't even expect you to say that. We've got to jump in or we'll be here all day. James, starting in verse 1 of, of chapter 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls his own brother Lord. To the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Next verse. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I love this. I love this because you're sitting here this morning and you're going, what is James talking about? What does he mean by various trials? I mean, I'm having, I'm having a hard time at work. Work is a trial for me every day. That falls under various trials. I'm having difficulty with my spouse. My marriage is on, is, is on the rocks. It is tough. That's various trials. My kid has lost it. He has gone nuts. That is a various trial. You have a trial in your life. I don't know what it is, but you know exactly what it is today. Or you know what it was. Or a, a, a trial is going to come in. You're going to show up at the doctor's office. And bad news, that's a trial. 
your kid, your, your son, your daughter is wrong. That's a trial. And James says various trials, whatever those may be, various kinds, all that they're all included, it's all encompassing. There is no getting out of this. Those trials should be counted as joy. So you're here this morning and you got bad news at the doctor. Your son, your daughter has lost it. Your marriage is on the rocks. It does not matter the trial, the tribulation, the difficulty. It is covered in the various kinds. And then the instruction, the admonition, indeed the command, if you know Christ this morning, if you are to count that difficult circumstance, situation, trial, as joy. Why would we do that? He answers it right after that. For you know that the testing of your faith, and I love this, because we all know when trials come, when difficulties come, when tribulations come, it tests our faith. Our, our faith is on trial. Right? And so he says the testing of your faith produces something. It produces steadfastness. Your Bible may say perseverance. I kind of like that better. The trial that you're in, the difficulty that you're in, the, the hardship that you're facing or that you will face or that you have faced, if you will stick to it, if you will stay in it, if you will not bail, produces something. It produces perseverance, steadfastness in the believer. Next verse. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Your, your Bible, I want to make sure I say this right. Your Bible may say, um, finish its work. Let perseverance finish its work, have its full effect. Be completed in your life. And that's James' main point. He says difficulties are a reality. It's not an if, it's a win. And if you will stay with it, if you will persevere, if you will remain steadfast, you will walk through it, the result is that you will be mature. That you will look more like Christ. And so the admonition the encouragement, the command is stay with it. Walk through it. Let steadfastness, let perseverance finish its work in your life. And when we're on the other side, God will create in us, will have created in us a maturity, a Christ-likeness that He could not have worked in our lives, that He could not have molded into our life without the difficulty and without the trial, and without the tribulation. If we take this outside of the spiritual realm, it makes perfect sense. I mean, because I sit up here and you go, okay, that's just preacher talk, man. I mean, tri trials and tribulations are to be counted as joy. I mean, I'm supposed to find joy in that because God is pr producing in me maturity, steadfastness, perseverance. I mean, that's, that's preacher talk. But if we take it outside of the spiritual realm and we look at the rest of your life, there would be very little pushback. I mean, if we sat down and I said, tell me about your life. Why are you the person that you are today? You would not go to the best times of your life. You wouldn't talk about when you graduated with a degree you didn't expect or, or, or uh, she, you got lucky enough and she married you. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't talk about those times. You would go to the dark places. 
And you would say, I am who I am today. Because this trial, because this difficulty, because of this tribulation. And I walked through it and the night was long. And the night was dark. And the days were short. And it was painful. But I am who I am today because of that. Because my kids were wronged. Because the doctor gave me that report. Because I was fired from that job. I am a a wrongly, I would add. I am who I am today because of that trial and that tribulation. And I wouldn't want to go through it again. But I am who I am today because of it. And that creates those tribulations, those trials, those tough times. Mold us and make us into the person we are. And it's no different in the spiritual realm. I mean, we want God to just sit up on his throne and kind of throw this pixie dust over us to make us mature. But God says it doesn't work like that. You want maturity. You want to look like Jesus. You want to be like Christ. You want to have supernatural empathy. You want to be sympathetic to those that are in need. You want to have a a desire or or, or a consciousness of those who are in desperate need of the gospel. The only way that that happens, the only way that you are molded and formed And refined into that is by walking through difficulties. Walking through the refiner's fire. According to the scriptures. One of my favorite guys to quote is A.W. Tozer. And this is what he says regarding, this is a quote that he gives regarding trials and difficulties. He says, The unplanted field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of being broken up. As a field, it, as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleeping contentment. And you and I want the quote to end there. I mean, I'm, I'm content with no difficulties. I'm content not having that wave rule over my life. I'm content without the difficulties, the trials, and the tribulation. But that's not reality. And so, the quote continues. But it, the field, is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know, because it is afraid of the plow and being broken up. In direct opposite of this, The cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots into the daylight, of, uh, into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. And then he closes with my favorite part of the quote. Nature's wonders follow the plow. 
And so it is with our lives. When we walk through life without any difficulties, in tranquility, it may be easy, but it is not producing in your life Christ-likeness. It is only when trials come and disrupt and disturb your life that you are molded, refined, and made into the image of the Son. It only happens through difficulty. James continues, If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I love this. He says, look, you're in, you're in a difficult situation and you don't understand. You're worried about it and you don't know what's going on. James tells us to ask God for wisdom. And all wisdom is, is asking God to see it from heaven's perspective. God, I don't know what you're doing in this, in this situation. I don't know what you're doing with my spouse. I don't know what you're doing with my kids. But God, I pray that I would see it. My desire is that I would see it from heaven's perspective. That I would see it from your point of view. I didn't expect to get that news from the doctor. And Father, it, it, I am worried about it. But Father, I pray that you would give me wisdom. I would see it from your perspective. And then he continues. And, he, and when we ask him that, it says that he gives it generously, I would add. But let him ask in faith with no doubt. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And I think this may have been like a jab at Peter. You remember Peter walking on the water? They probably made fun of him forever. That was a good jab. Next. And he was like, Brother John didn't get out of the boat. But anyway. Next verse. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And when I read this, I said, God, what in the world are you teaching us here? I mean, in the, in the previous verse, you said, if we lack wisdom, if we worry, if we don't understand, to ask and you'll give generously. But then underneath you say, if, we, if we're worried, if we uh, lack understanding, if we lack faith, then don't ask. So God, what are you teaching us here? Here's what I think. Our prayer should be in that situation. Father, when I'm walking through a difficulty, walking through a trial and a tribulation, and I want perseverance to do its work, and I don't understand what's going on, Father, grant me wisdom. Increase my faith. Kill my doubts. Father, grant me wisdom. I want to see this problem, this difficulty, this tribulation from your perspective. Grant me wisdom and kill my doubts. He continues. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his, in, in, in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Next verse. For the sun rises uh, with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And then he closes with this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed is the man who perseveres. Blessed is the man who walks 
in a straight line under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. And so when difficulties come, when trials come, when worry creeps up, our prayer must be, Father, grant me the ability to see this situation from your perspective and kill my unbelief. Get rid of my unbelief. My, my lack of faith, kill that and produce in me perseverance, maturity, steadfastness. And the result, the Bible tells us, is that a crown of life is waiting for those who love Christ, who love Him, and persevere through difficulties. A crown of life is waiting for those who walk graciously through trials and tribulations. The Bible tells us in just the previous verse that if we do not do that, we're like a double-minded man. And what that means is that's somebody who, who says, you know what, this difficulty, this trial, this tribulation, I'm just going to worry about it. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to ask for wisdom. I'm not going to try to persevere. I'm just going to worry about it because I don't believe that God can or will do something about it. Or... For the people that are not warriors, a double-minded man is somebody who does not worry, but does not pray, God, grant me wisdom and kill my unbelief, kill my lack of faith. Work in this situation so that you will produce in me perseverance. I'm not going to pray that prayer because God cannot or he will not answer my prayer. And then turns around on Sunday morning, puts on their Sunday best, shows up to church, and pretends everything is all right. The Bible calls that person a double-minded man who is washed upon the sea, tossed about wherever the storm may blow. And my encouragement this morning would be take off the veneer and come alongside your brothers and sisters. That is what is so awesome about being in a group. Come alongside brothers and sisters and say, I am hurting you. These trials are killing me. I don't know if I can get through it. But I want to persevere. And would you come alongside and pray with me for steadfastness, for joy in the journey. That's a person that is refined, molded into a person that looks like Jesus, that is refined into the image of his son. When Mary Jo was seven, eight years old, she doesn't remember exactly. She, uh, one of her chores was to go out and feed the family dog, Sadie, it was a beagle, the worst dog in the world. I'm sorry, if you have a beagle, Susie. Susie. Say, I just make up names like I can't remember. So, 
saying it's Tuesday. It's all the same. It's still a dumb beagle. No, I'm just kidding. I know. If you are mad, if you have a beagle, I'm sorry. My email is phil at wellspringchurch.com. So if you have a problem, just send it to that email address. He'll get it taken care of. I'll get it taken care of. No. no, Susie was the beagle. And her, her job was to go out and feed and feed the dog. And, and so when this particular day, got the food, went out, bent down to feed the dog, and Susie, this beagle, jumps up and bites her in the face. Blood everywhere. I mean, you know how, how face wounds go. Blood everywhere. She runs back inside, gets her mom. Mom gathers up brother and sister. Dad is out somewhere, work, or hunting, some, somewhere, but not at home. So, uh, so Sharon gets the kids. That's Mary Jo's mom. Gets the kids, puts them in the family car, heads off to the hospital. She actually texted Mary Jo this morning and said they did not go to the nearest hospital because she thought Mary Jo was going to have to have plastic surgery. That's how bad it was. All right? So blood everywhere, headed to the hospital. Um, on the way, the engine in the car blows up, not working anymore. Thankfully, graciously, a guy comes by, picks up this family. He has no clue what he's getting in the middle of. Picks up the family, this face... Uh, this young seven, eight-year-old, bleeding profusely, takes them to the emergency room, drops them off at the door. As you can imagine, they push her to the back of the emergency room, and the doctor says, I'm going to have to get in and clean up the, the wound, and then I'm going to have to stitch up your face. Now, you don't tell a seven-year-old that. I mean, and if you're in my situation, you don't tell a 34-year-old that. You're going to go, ballistic. I mean, I'm going to lose it. I'm coming off the table. And that's exactly what Mary Jo was going to do. So Sharon, her mom, with seven-year-old crying, in pain, hurting, climbs up on the table and pins her down so the doctor can do the work of fixing the bite. This morning, you're in a trial, a tribulation, or if one comes, I pray you'll remember. Your loving, caring, heavenly Father is pinning you down so that healing can take place. And you and I go, no, 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 I don't want the stitches. I don't want the stitches. I don't want the stitches. But your loving Heavenly Father pins you down and says that stitches are the only way you survive in some instances or at least have the ability to heal. And so in the difficulties, the trials, your loving Heavenly Father is doing a work in your life that cannot be accomplished any other way. And if you will walk through it, if you will allow Him understanding, remembering that He loves you, you will allow him to pin you down and do the wrecking work that is necessary on the other side of the refinement, on the other side of the difficulty when the sun begins to rise. 
you will have an empathy, a sympathy, a Christ-likeness that you would have never gotten any other way. I grew up in a, in closing, I grew up in a culture uh, that was almost 50-50 African-American and white. And so it was a multicultural city that I grew up in, in Hampton, Virginia. And, and I went to a Christian school uh, there in, in high school. And my senior year in high school, in our Bible class, one of the things that they taught us was about the early church in America. The African-American early church, because there was a large, uh, it was a large part of our culture, and I think it was necessary, it was awesome, to learn early, about the early African-American church in America. And then they would also teach us about the early uh, white church in America. Well, the guy that taught was a guy named Reverend or Pastor Gary Ham, and he happened to be a good friend of our family. And um, Pastor Ham was the one that was responsible for teaching us about the early um, African-American church in the United States. And I'll never forget one of the things that he told us. He said, in the early days of our nation, when slavery and its oppression was at its greatest, at its strongest, the only uh, respite that these slaves, and even those that were free, the only respite that they had all week was Sunday morning when they would gather for worship. And that's why even today, their worship services will go on and on and on. Kind of like what Phil was talking about. It was their only respite, their only sanctuary from the difficulties of this life. He, he talked about in that context, in, in their worship services, most, if not all the people there were illiterate, uneducated, including the pastor. And so they did not have a deep, strong framework theologically. Their roots theologically did not go real deep. But they did, and they were able to hold on to these general, very basic truths, themes in the scriptures. And so they would repeat those for days, months, weeks, even years sometimes. One particular theme that, uh, that, that our teacher, Dr. or uh, 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 Pastor, um, Gary uh, Ham told us about one of those major themes that he told us about was this, and this was held on to for decades in the African American church. It was if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And That is all that we're saying this morning. This, this theme, this chant, this song would start in, in generic or general, specific, one-on-one -on -one conversations. If God is for us, who can be against us? And it would begin to grow. The chants would get louder until after a few minutes, the entire congregation is singing, shouting, chanting. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, he, justice will be served. If God is for us, he will intervene. If God is for us, we will see our way through this. If God is for us, the trial will come to an end. If God is for us, the tribulation will come to an end. If God is for us, who can be against us? They would chant this over and over, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. Understanding and knowing that their loving Heavenly Father 
who desires good for them, who, who longs for them to be prosperous, who longs for them to look like Christ, would one day intervene. And that is all we're saying this morning. In your trial, in your tribulation, walk through it. Persevere. See it through to the end. Because your loving Heavenly Father is for you this morning. And that is why we can sing me no worry, me no fret. God has never and will never fail us yet. Let's pray. Father, you're for us. You love us. You have intervened on our behalf. And Father, the, the proof of your love is in our trials. The proof that you love us is in the difficulties. And so Father, may we persevere. May we see it through to the end and on the other side have a maturity, a Christ-likeness, an empathy, a sympathy that we could never have for our brothers and sisters without going through the difficulty. And it's in that we pray.